this is episode 232 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Neurodegenerative Diseases, Dr. Clive Svensson. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have a very special guest in Arun's history, Dr. Clive Svensson from Cedar sinai He's on the podcast to talk about his research using stem cells to treat neurodegenerative diseases and as a tool for modeling these diseases in vitro. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, this week, we'd like to remind our listeners about Neural Cell News, one of Stem Cell's free weekly scientific newsletters. Neural Cell News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in neural cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with Neural Cell News. You can subscribe for free at NeuralCellNews.com. All right, Arun, I'm chomping at the bit to get at this first roundup story. You know me. I'm a real fanboy for the whole cardiovascular system. You too. You too. Admit it. You love the heart. But I'm a freak for angiogenesis and hematopoiesis. And this is a story that's right up my alley. Angiogenesis, right? First thing you need to do in development, first functional organ, right? It's the heart and the cardiovascular system that gets things pumping. And the way that works is by these angiogenic growth factors, chemokines, extracellular matrix proteins. There's a whole retinue of, of things that play a role. But VEGF is one of the major ones, right? Vascular endothelial growth factor. And uh, VEGF, amongst other things, secreted by cells in the vicinity of developing blood vessels and capillary beds. And they then act on the receptor, specifically VEGFR2, uh, most notably, uh, and essentially that's on endothelial cells. Uh, and VEGFs also, the many different isoforms of VEGF, they actually bind to the extracellular matrix as well. Uh, and that allows uh, the maintenance of a high local concentration. It creates this microenvironment for angiogenesis. There's also a role for macrophages, my other favorite type of cell, hematopoietic cells here, macrophages and monocytes. Um, and their role in angiogenesis has been well established. And that is that the monocytes, for example, will like extravasate to tumors um, in one case, in tumor vascular vasculogenesis, and mature into these tumor-associated macrophages, which then promote angiogenesis by secreting growth factors, cytokines, again, most notably VEGFA. Um, Migrosomes, the newest some that we got, you know, we love our somes in science, and this is kind of the new new kid on the block. These migrosomes are newly discovered organelles uh, that are the result of cell migration. When a cell migrates, you get these numerous long membrane tethers, they call retraction fibers, that are pulled from the trailing edge of, edge of the cell. Uh, and uh, within these retraction fibers, these large vesicles that are called the migrosomes. And this has been studied a lot in zebrafish um, in the context of development, in, in the context of gastrulation. It's been shown that these migrosomes uh, are filled with molecules that provide developmental cues, cues like CXCL12, uh, which is really enriched, highly enriched in these migrosomes. And when the migrosomes rupture or leak, 
they release these factors that act on surrounding cells and that affects organ morphogenesis. That's in zebra fish during gastrulation, right? Um, but there's been some kind of mechanistic elements, how, how microsomes work with the tetraspanins, et cetera. They've been studied. I mean, they're not brand new on the block. There's some insight into how they work, but mostly they've been studied in terms of their function in the context of development. Here, I mentioned the example of the zebrafish. In this article, uh, the lab of Li Yu uh, from uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing, uh, <clears throat> they look at migrosome formation by monocytes in the context of chicken embryo angiogenesis and show that they play a, an essential role. They show that there's these highly migratory cells uh, that patrol the capillary beds during formation in the chorioallantoic membrane. And these migratory cells deposit migrosomes, um, cr create these migrosome-enriched areas. And using single cell, ULAB showed that single cell seek, they, sh they showed that these cells are monocytes. Um, they show that if you deplete monocytes using this drug, uh, you get impaired capillary formation. Then they use mass spec, and this is where they go deep. That's why I made it to Nature Cell Biology, really highly reputable mechanistic cell biology journal. They use mass spec um, to show these microsomes are enriched with proangiogenic factors, and then they purify them and show that in vivo and in vitro, they promote capillary formation and migratory uh, monocyte recruitment are, are chemotaxis, which is in vivo and in vitro, respectively. And then they do some more mechanism there. Uh, as I alluded to with the tetraspans, they knock down or knock out tetraspans, show that there's reduced migrosome formation. Um, and last thing, as you would expect, they, they show that the, the, there's VEGFA and CXCL12, which was found in the zebrafish during gastrulation, but here they add to the mix VEGFA, which is enriched in, the, in these microsomes. Therefore, providing a hint as to both the proangiogenic as, as well as to the directional uh, cues that are contained within these microsomes. So for me, I, I think this is a cool, cool study and cool idea. Um, and when I think about impact, it's beyond just you know the, the mechanism and insight into these developmental processes. But I just wonder, in like in combination with the proliferation of 3D bioprinting here, like my, using this microsome idea, and you know, they're kind of laying a trail or blazing a trail there for the for the vascular cells to fill in. If this might be a nice way to create like a vascular template uh, in the context of you know three 3D organoid or, or tissue uh, generation as we move forward with these really high level uh, organogenic. Uh, efforts. Arun, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's a, a unique way to think about it. Perhaps you can use some of these microsomes to like a seed a road almost in the form of like a, a 3D printed vascularized construct because that that is a major holy grail in the 3D bioprinting field is to be able to provide appropriately vascularized tissue constructs and thick tissues. Maybe this is a good way to do it. I also wanted to reflect a little bit on the model system here, which is the chick embryo. I think for developmental biologists, this is you know, this is a, a beautiful model system, which has been around for a long time. You can harness different chick eggs and use them for these developmental studies and uh, really beautiful imaging that you can do this way as well. There's been a, a lot of great cardiac work that's been done in the chick embryo as well. So don't hate on these unique model systems. They've been around for a long time and they're very, they have their utility. That is for sure. 
I mean, I I didn't have as lot a lot of background in this whole microsome area, but it got me to think, you know, if this is a developmental angle and you're studying the impact of the microsomes on the developmental side of things, I'm wondering how important these things might be as well for other instances of angiogenesis, like during tumor angiogenesis, or perhaps even cases of injury where you uh, have to, uh, you know, you have to have angiogenesis in response to an injury stimulus, right? So perhaps there's a lot of other untapped avenues for examining the, you know, the impact of these microsomes. And I'm cool to see, I'm excited to see uh, the next step for, for this microsome area of work. Absolutely agree. Uh, that occurred to me and I'm glad you mentioned it because like, yeah, I think that they look at this in, in, in zebrafish in the, that context, cause you know, they're transparent, there's great imaging you can do. They're contained, they have a, a short life cycle. Um, but yeah, you have to wonder the implications here. Are this might be just fundamental period to angiogenesis, neoangiogenesis. So, so this could be really important across the board. Um, and also by the same token, almost you know the cousin of these microsomes, the exosome, which is probably very similar in, in perhaps the the what it, what it is and how it's made. Uh, but you know exosomes now there's a whole field of biology devoted to them and they can signal in any context right anything can be contained anything that can be transcribed um or and or translated can be in an exosome so um you wonder if microsomes can have a scope beyond gastrulation and, and patterning with the cxcl12 or angiogenesis with the vegfa i mean what else is it in these microsomes you, you look at neural patterning and really makes you think maybe there's a there's something to that as well yeah i mean anything that has a role in patterning or you know you think about develop, developmental morphogens it's not just vegf it's any sort of secretive factor that may be able to be harnessed and and intersected with this ohm microsome biology exosome biology right there's a million different secreted ligands out there that are driving these developmental cues. So I agree with you. I think it'll be cool to see what's the next step with all these uh, different types of ohms that are coming out, you know, these days, exosomes, microsomes, so on. Moving on to another story in the roundup here. This is a pretty high profile paper in Nature titled RAS Drives Malignancy Through Stem Cell Crosstalk with the Microenvironment. This is the, the first of a couple of microenvironment papers that we've that we're going to cover here on the show. This is coming from the lab of a an icon in the stem cell field, and in particular the the skin stem cell field, and Elaine Fuchs from your neck of the woods over there in in New York. Um, so we're looking at you know squamous cell carcinoma in this situation. The the Fuchs lab has been using a bunch of different model systems for looking at skin malignancy and skin development over the years. Uh, we've covered some cool stuff from Sherry Gur-Cohen, who actually has her own lab, I believe, who was a postdoc in the Elaine Fuchs lab. Um, I think uh, we covered some of her work on the lymphatic system and how the lymphatic system is really important for uh, tumor progression. This is uh, another cancer stem cell, skin stem cell story, uh, focusing on squamous cell carcinoma, which has been studied for a long time. It's triggered by the marked elevation of RAS. RAS is really popular, common, famous oncogene, right? RAS map case signaling and the progression, which can go from this benign papilloma to an invasive malignancy. Here, they're looking at not necessarily a cell intrinsic method or a genetic method of inducing some of these uh, tumor 
cells, but the, the tumor malignancy and the tumor regression, but looking at the impact of the microenvironment to, to actually drive these, these tumor phenotypes. So at the tumor stromal interfaces, there's a, apparently a subset of these tumor-initiating progenitors, cancer stem cells, that, we're, that we've talked a, bit, a lot about here on the show, which can obtain this increased resistance to chemotherapy and also immunotherapy through utilizing the RAS-MAPK pathway. So, but the question here is how this, you know, initiation of the cancer stem cell phenotype is, it's been worked out over the years, and we've had a number of guests on the show who've been focusing on cancer stem cells, but how this is going from this uh, benign state to an invasive squamous cell carcinoma state, looking outside of the in intrinsic genetic programs, the, that's what they're really focusing on here. And so here they're showing that in mice, after this oncogenic RAS activation, the cancer stem cells can actually rewire their gene expression program and trigger a, a signaling crosstalk within the tissue microenvironment that can drive a malignant progression of the cancer, okay? So the key here is this is a non-genetic cascade of uh, intercellular exchanges that are happening in these cancer stem cells. And it's, you know, diving deeply into the story, they did a bunch of really cool imaging to look at you know, the, the progression of these different cancer stem cells and the transition from the benign state to the malignant state. And they actually saw that it, it's a pretty famous secreted ligand, secreted protein in TGF-beta, which is actually really critical in driving uh, from the microenvironment, this progression from a benign to a cancer stem cell state, okay? So uh, the, the microenvironment and aberrant crosstalk between the cancer stem cells and the microenvironment is triggering angiogenesis, like what we talked about, uh, and also TGF-beta signaling, creating these conditions that are conducive for hijacking other signaling pathways, leptin and leptin receptor, which also turns on other well-known uh, cancer signaling pathways like PI3 kinase and AKT. All right, so this is, you know, it, it's a lot to absorb, but I, just to to wrap it up, this is a signaling centric story, and I'm a actually a big fan of cell signaling. I think it's it's exciting, it's it's awe inspiring to see how cancer can be initiated through just a cascade of cell signaling, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an intrinsic genetic program, which is kind of what this whole paper is focused on. So I think it's a, it's a neat story. It's a reflection on something that we've talked a lot about here on the show the importance of the niche in all different sorts of developmental processes and cancer processes as well. So another great story from the Fuchs lab. Yeah, I, I never would have guessed it would be TGF-beta and AKT would have something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise, but, surprise. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the way they got there that makes this such a big deal. And I totally agree with all you said. Yeah, talking about the uh, importance of the microenvironment, all, all I got to say about that is I mean, Elaine Fuchs' microenvironment is very rich. Uh, we've covered so much work that's come out of labs that have come out of that lab. Cedric Lampin, guests of the show we've had, Valerie Horsley, Valentina Greco. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, that's just the half of it. I also have many friends that have come out of that lab and gone to great success. Ting Chen amongst them, Elena Scoba. So, I mean, look, Elaine Fuchs, you're doing it. It's another paper, another feather in your cap, but I appreciate you more for, for the, the scientists that you pump out of that lab. I mean, it's like Howard Hughes at this point. You've got a brain trust in, in there that rivals the best of them, and uh, you're really a, an icon and a legend. And why have you, has she been on the show? I mean, come on, have a listen, and I'm calling you out. <laughs> 
come come join us, please, please. We we'd like to talk to you about any one of your hundreds uh, of major contributions. Hey, you can just take the subway and go knock on our door if you want. That might that might uh yeah, inspire cross, her across the street. In fact, you're calling me out. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna get out after this show, and then we're gonna go have a knock on Elaine's door, and I'm probably again you're gonna have to bail me out of jail. Or... <laughs> good luck with that i mean but i agree i think it'd be great to have her on the show like like what you're alluding to her micro environment from her laboratory has been extremely proliferative and it's been really great to see the the incredible productivity in her lab and also the amazing scientists and good people that have come out of her, her lab as well so uh shout out to the fuchs lab and to elaine as well for real um yeah sticking with the theme uh, microenvironment. This is a story about, you know, the basics, the beginnings, uh, in vitro human pluripotent stem cells that are naive, right? You know, there's the, the naive versus the prime, the two distinct, uh, although there's a lot of intermediates that we've been talking about lately, the two distinct pluripotent stages, which correspond to pre-implantation and post-implantation epiblasts, right? Um, and the real neat thing, which made naive pluripotent cells such a, a big deal, was they had this uh, more primitive, call it, or potent is another way of thinking it, um, developmental identity. Uh, and also, uh, you know, they could they could approximate some of the events in, with both peri-implantation as well as pre-implantation is what I mean there. Um, and, and the other thing is epigenetically. Uh, and this has led to a lot of a lot of greater scope of these cells. Notably, I mean, we talked just a few episodes ago with Jacob Hanna and his uh, derivation conditions for naive pluripotent cells enabled a generation of primordial germ cells, which really shook up the field. Um, it wouldn't have been possible without it. So yeah, naive cells, it's really important. Um, and what's key about them, not just in their their biology, but in their morphology is they have a tendency to organize into these compact dome-shaped uh, colonies, right? Which makes sense. That's mimicking the, the spatial organization of the pre-implantation uh, pre epiblast, right? And the three-dimensionality dimen there is uh, contained within the surrounding primitive ectoderm and trophectoderm, um, which, you know, they support a lot of processes uh, by secreting morphogens, but also by creating, depositing, and also remodeling the extracellular matri matrix in the context of this massively proliferating embryo. So it's not just the signals is my point. It's also the ECM is, is the point of this paper. Um, and although, you know, there's been a ton of work, it was everything for decades, well, many years, just to figure out what the cocktail was, and we still think about it and work on it. What's the ideal cocktail to keep these cells in a pluripotent state or to differentiate them? And most of the time we're thinking about inductive cues and proteins, et cetera, um, transcription factors even. But regarding the ECM, which is the point here is such a big deal, very little is known. And that's a shame because ECM components are likely to contribute to shaping that dynamic environment. Um, it's, you know, guiding cell, cell morphology, survival, proliferation, differentiation. Arun was just talking about how critical the microenvironment is. But we've been talking about this a lot. Microenvironment does a lot more. Cell intrinsic? No. Um, so naive uh, cells in vitro are pretty much universally cultured on meth. 
in order to keep them long-term maintenance. It's the most reliable way. And that's a huge gap there because, you know, long ago, uh, researchers have derived the conditions for getting the prime cells. And that's enabled a lot of real practical differentiation, industrial applications where MEF are a, a significant limitation. But there's been very few naive feeder-free culture conditions that have been published. And they all require these very high concentration of ECM proteins, mostly most notably laminins and these other mixtures. So here, uh, the lab of Nicola Alvasora, they take this, which is at, a, and this says a lot, uh, the Department of Industrial Engineering in University of Padova in Italy. So this is like industrial engineers had to take a crack at this. And they use uh, uh, an unbiased, and I think that's the key here. They use this unbiased approach, but also this integrated approach that incorporated all kinds of tech, microfluidic cultures, a lot of omics, transcriptomic, proteomic, secretomic analysis. Um, what they found is that naive colonies are characterized by, as you might expect, a, a ECM-rich microenvironment that enables self-organization. Um, and they then extended this to develop a, a 3D culture system that they used uh, to show long-term feeder-free uh, self-renewal, so 10-plus passages. But also, I think more critically, they, they allowed this direct and well-coordinated, synchronized uh, um, differentiation and morphogenesis by just like a modulation of the existing environment. So I think this is this is the key here, and this is the point raised by the authors, is like in this one culture, you maintain, you maintain, you maintain, then you tweak um, one element, maintain a 3D environment, but something that's more directional towards morphogenesis and differentiation. And what they highlight here, which was I think the biggest point, is that it's it's the it's the the way that you capture human development from a single cell, like you can envision getting a single cell self-renewing to a colony and then differentiating just like an embryo. And as we're, I'm sure, about to talk about Arun, this is very timely considering the proliferation of these synthetic embryo uh, techniques that are taking the world by storm. Yeah, this is a really relevant topic to discuss right now. And again, another reflection on the importance of the microenvironment. <laughs> One thing I, I do need to mention here is that the the matrix, the the ECM rich hydrogels that they were actually using in the study, do you know what they were? They were they were matrigel. So <laughs> so matrigel or gel tricks, okay? And I'm not hating on matrigel. I use it every single day in my IPS culture, but uh, it's not well defined, right? So if you want to get, we've said this again and again and again. If you really want to to get to the mechanistic nitty gritty of as, as to as to why these this phenomenon are happening in the in in this case the naive pluripotency, you got to have something that's a little bit more well defined because it's such a gamish matrigel and gel tracks, right? That you don't know necessarily what's causing the phenotype in a lot of situations. This is true across the board, and it's a it's a general criticism of using matrigel. It works. It definitely works for growing cells, but I think to 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 dive into the mechanism, I think you really need to to define it, to define the matrix a little bit more, don't you think? I agree. Of course, you hate her, but I know you're not hating. You respect and appreciate <laughs> the outcome, and I think that's what we agree there. The endpoint is is the key here. It's not a perfect analogy, but like 
human pluripotent cells don't really exist in, in, in vivo, right? They're a hack. And Matrigel is a hack. There's a bunch of hacks. And I think like the, the primed cells before them, uh, which is a bit of an ironic temporally the sequence there, but the prime cells before them, yeah, they, there's a pathway to get complete FDA compliant, Arun compliant cell culture. And that may go via Matrigel and Geltrex, but I believe that a truly, truly Xeno-free uh, mix is soon to come. At least that's my hope. It's cheap. It's easy. It works. Okay. I worship at the altar of Major Gel. Let me tell you, I use it every single day. So I'm not hating on you, Major Gel. It's just, you got to define these things a little bit better. You know what I mean? So anyways, moving on to our last paper of the roundup, and this is a good transition to our, our guest today, who's actually my boss. Oh boy. Uh, Dr. Clive Svensson. He's the, the head of the Regenerative Medicine Institute here at the Cedar sinai uh, the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And uh, this last paper is also a neurodegenerative paper, and that's kind of the focus of Clive's work as well. This is coming from a colleague of, of Clive's. Uh, I'm sure they know each other very well, and, and Dr. Fred Gage. And the first author here is Joseph Hurdy. This is a cell stem cell paper looking at uh, Alzheimer's disease, which is something that both Clive and uh, Fred are working on and have worked on for a very long time. Uh, the title of the paper is Increased Post-Mitotic Senescence in Aged Human Neurons is a Pathological Feature of Alzheimer's Disease. I like this story because it's kind of defining a, a, a biomarker almost for, for Alzheimer's and in cell senescence, this post-mitotic cell senescence. And I like some of the model systems that they used here as well. So this idea of senescence, right, aging, it, it's a phenomenon that's limited to proliferating cells, which has been challenged by a, a growing evidence of senescent-like features in terminally differentiated cells, in, including neurons, okay? And so the persistence of these senescent cells in late life might be associated with tissue dysfunction and maybe even increased risk of certain age-related diseases such as Alzheimer's. And indeed, they found that in Alzheimer's disease, uh, brains, they have significantly higher proportions of neurons that are expressing these senescent markers, cell senescent markers, and their distribution actually indicates so what they call bystander effects, okay? These Alzheimer's disease patient-derived uh, induced neurons, this is actually one of the cool things about this paper, they actually did some uh, IN or induced neuron studies from Alzheimer's disease patients, they were showing really strong transcriptomic, epigenetic, and molecular biomarker signatures of cell senescence and a specific neuronal cell senescence-like state. And these induced neurons, single cell transcriptomics, they took that to the next level and did a bunch of single cell and revealed that this senescent neurons actually have certain oncogenic challenges and even metabolic dysfunctions and can also display a pro-inflammatory signature. And the, the other part of this is they came in with a a senotherapeutic, something that can reverse cell senescence to perhaps reverse that uh, Alzheimer's uh, cellular phenotype, at least. So I think it's a it's a relatively straightforward study using a, a a a disease model of Alzheimer's and these induced neurons. But I think I I really like the the senolytic and the senotherapeutic angle here. This is a disease that, you know, we'll talk to Clive about neurodegenerative diseases. Alzheimer's is one of those diseases where we got to throw everything against the wall. You got to throw the kitchen sink because there's just not a lot of great 
therapeutics out there right now, right? So anything that we can do to, to better understand the mechanisms and the progressions of Alzheimer's is is really a good thing. And I, I, I'm i a big fan of these in vitro disease modeling studies for Alzheimer's and in particular, these senotherapeutics uh, uh, strategies as well. So I think it's a really cool study coming from a, a an icon in the stem cell field, just like Elaine uh, in Dr. Fred Gage. Just like your boss coming up. But um, yeah, this is uh, the Alzheimer's to me is it's been, always been a quandary, not more because I just don't uh, I don't follow it so closely. But just I mean, I'll ask what what's the idea with, you know, by the way, so you hear of all these traditional pharma type drugs that have you know been attempted and failed or really famously just recently where they approved one that provided very little benefit. And I think they're trying to reverse that. But just now one was approved that seemed to be helping. So I ask myself and I ask, you know, any specialist is like, what what are we converging on here? Are we going to get there with drugs? And if not, the cell therapy idea, is it that, you know, this would make it seem maybe and perhaps, or I don't know, is it like diagnostic, predictive? We'll say this person is at risk and then we'll use like a prevention, a pharma prevention or a cellular prevention. Here you talk about like the, the senolytic um but I, at that point in disease progression where they're already senescent, I don't know what the benefit would be in a human brain. I just wonder what the best chance is here uh, for Alzheimer's, as opposed to like ALS and these other diseases, which seem to have both like a regenerative as well as a preventative um, position that could kind of reroute a degenerative condition. Uh, what do you think the best approach here is going to be for Alzheimer's? What's going to work? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, definitely want to get Clive's opinion on this first and foremost, but I, I think it's about early targeting, it's early detection and identification, and easier said than done, but identifying people who may be prone to getting it or are going to definitely get it and having some sort of therapeutic strategy or preventative prophylactic strategy almost to, to prevent disease onset in the first place. Because kind of what you're alluding to, once you get down that disease pathway in Alzheimer's, the reversal and that gets really complicated. I think that that's really hard. So I think targeting the disease early is perhaps the best way to go. But again, <laughs> I'm not the expert in this area. <laughs> yeah, nor am I. I'm really just asking the questions and we'll turn that around and uh, really get uh, Clive's opinion if he's willing to share on that. But um, before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem Cell Technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. All right, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest, not just to us all and myself, but also to Arun and his pedigree, Dr. Clive Svensson, who is executive director of the Regenerative Medicine Institute at Cedars-Sinai. The mission of the Svensson Laboratory is to study neurodegenerative diseases such as ALS, Huntington's disease, spinal muscular atrophy, Parkinson's disease, and Allen Herndon Dudley syndrome using stem cells as a disease treatment as well as a tool for modeling these diseases in vitro. Dr. Svensson also pursues many collaborative efforts with other researchers interested in the use of neuroprogenitor cells for the treatment of stroke and macular degeneration. Clive, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. 
Yeah, for sure, Clive. Let's dive right into it. So you've been involved in the stem cell field for a really long time now, you know, staying at the intersection of neuroscience and stem cell biology for a while. I mean, working on all the areas that Daylon just mentioned. And folks might not actually know that when you were at Wisconsin before when you were at Cedars, uh, your lab was the first to generate human iPSCs from a patient with spinal muscular atrophy, actually publishing a, a nature paper on the topic. And you're not afraid to branch out when it comes to your science. And I'm pointing to your recent involvement involvement in biomanufacturing, organ on chip, and even space science initiatives here at Cedars, which we've collaborated on. Um, but for those who aren't as familiar with your work, could you give our listeners kind of a bigger overview of what, what the lab is working on right now? Yeah, thanks, Arun. And uh, look, we, it's quite a broad lab. And I think one of the central things to remember that, that I enjoy during science is if I see an interesting question, I like to go after it. And it's kind of irrespective of the disease or the area. But if it's an interesting question and I can address it with the tools and the technologies that we have, I'll kind of go off to, after it. For example, we did a, a study on BRCA recently, which is a mutation that causes breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And uh, I was drawn into that because of the fascination of disease modeling and the lack of our understanding of most diseases. And I'll talk about the BRCA experiment a little bit, but the lab in broad sense uses stem cells to both model diseases and treat diseases. And in fact, the core, the core idea here is taking a, a stem cell and turning it into the cell that you're interesting in, interested in. And if that's to model the disease, for instance, for your area, the heart, you know, if you take a cell from a patient uh, uh, who has an arrhythmia, take stem cells from that patient, iPS cells, differentiate them into beating cardiomyocytes, you might mirror the arrhythmia in that patient. That's modeling, that's very exciting. At the same time, by making those cardiomyocytes, you might be able to transplant them into that same patient and uh, solve some of the heart problems. Now, of course, that, I'm asking there an enormously complex <laughs> set of questions on both the modeling uh, and the transplant side, but that's the idea. Let's take these cells, learn how to turn them into specific cell types in the Petri dish and apply that to either disease modeling or cell transplantation for therapeutic purposes. Yes, I mean, and, and the scope of your interests and fascinations is, is very broad, as we've alluded to here, but but ALS has been a major focus of, of yours for a long time, and you've made a lot of, of significant progress there on a disease that, that has been and remains one of the highest profile conditions that could be addressed by cell-based therapies. Um, you know, we've been talking about it since the beginning, I guess, is my point there. So with many of the therapies that we've also been talking about from the beginning, like diabetes therapies and Parkinson's, um, which seem are starting to, to seem less like dreams and, and moving more towards reality, um, where are we with ALS? Uh, uh, can you tell us if we're along a similar path? Are we as close as we seem to be with other cell-based therapies? Give us the lay of the land there, will you? Well, ALS is, is one of the ones you don't want to be diagnosed with. As you know, um, it's a miserable disease, usually three years uh, after diagnosis to death. Um, here, I think we've, we've actually learned, and Arun mentioned a paper that we published when I first got into the field, which is spinal muscular atrophy. Now, spinal SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, is almost like a junior version of ALS. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the most miserable disease. It's caused by one mutation in the SMN gene. And if you have this mutation uh, you're in your baby, 
uh, within about six to eight months, it goes floppy and it starts to lose all motor function. And there's absolutely no treatment for this, no cure. As of about 10 years ago, nothing. And so the question was, why? Why, why are the motor neurons dying? So really, I got into the field uh, by taking, I was with Jamie Thompson when he first and Shinya Yamanaka first discovered iPS cells. I was in Wisconsin and his lab was next to mine. And Jamie actually asked me, so what do you think is a disease that might most give us information on modeling using IPS technology in the neuro area? Because I'm the neuro guy. And I said, well, spinal muscular atrophy, for sure. So we got a single, we got fibroblast from a patient uh, that uh, died of spinal muscular atrophy, a baby. And we got this fibroblast from the mother <clears throat> that, that uh, didn't have spinal muscular atrophy, carried the mutation, but didn't have it. And we made IPS lines from both the mother and the baby. and we made motor neurons that die in spinal muscular atrophy. And it was quite remarkable. After eight weeks, nothing happened, but we kept pushing the cultures. And between 10 and 15 weeks, the, the motor neurons from the baby started to die in the dish, whereas the motor neurons from the mother remained healthy. And that really was exciting because it gave us a way to look at model that motor neuron death in the baby. And I immediately thought, wow, if we could do this in ALS, that would be fantastic because we don't know what causes ALS. We can't do a brain biopsy from a living patient, which you can do with other tissues. You have to wait for the patient to die, and then you have all the post-mortem issues. So we don't really get living neurons very easily. And so we decided to start looking at adult-onset motor neuron diseases like ALS, which is the adult form, if you like, of SMA. Mm. Now, the issue with ALS is it's unlike SMA, only 10% is caused by genetic mutations. And 90% is what we call sporadic. We don't know the cause. So right at the beginning, we started, us and other groups like Kevin Egan's group from Harvard, started making iPS cells from patients with ALS that carried mutations, genetic mutations, thinking that we could then mimic that disease in the dish, just like we did for spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and then we started taking sporadic patients with ALS, uh, making iPS cells, uh, and making those iPS cells into motor neurons, and asking, what about sporadic patients? Are there any? Uh, phenotypes do the neurons die in the dish? The answer is simple. The neurons, unlike SMA, don't die in the dish, <laughs> mm. uh, unfortunately. We'd love it if they just underwent cell death because then we'd have a fantastic model, apply drugs. It's much more complicated. So my experience with ALS has been in all adult neurodegenerative diseases is modeling is complicated. And the reason is not only if you've got to make the neuron, but then you have to put this impact of age and most neurodegeneration is a, is a combination of aging and a genetic vulnerability coming together to cause the death of that. In the case of ALS, it's a motor neuron, you become paralyzed. In Parkinson's, it's a dopamine neuron and you have movement issues. So, those, so it's important that we understand those intersections. But at the same time, you, you can use IPS modeling to ask, what are the very earliest changes in motor neurons in ALS that happen in the dish? And you can do that through very deep sequencing of the neurons, RNA-seq, proteomics. And if you look deep enough, do you, do, you look, do you find those very first changes that happen that then trigger downstream changes later on that then kill that motor neuron? And I'll just give you one analogy quickly for me, and that is the, the car accident analogy. Um, if, if you go to a scene of a car accident, there's usually, you know, there's a bus, people are crying, on the street, there's a motorcycle upside down and there's a police officer. Uh, that to me is ALS at the end and it's the accident. Mm. 
Um, but what you really want to know is how did that accident happen? So you interview everyone. You, you know, you start interviewing. Then the truck driver says, yeah, I was going over the hill in my truck. Uh, the sun came in my eyes. I was smoking a cigarette and I hit the cyclist and all that stuff happened. It's usually a multitude of things, right? And what we can do with IPS technologies, go back to the beginning when that neuron was first developing into a motor neuron and say, what went wrong to trigger the ultimate death later on? And I think we're starting to understand some pieces of what goes wrong in a motor neuron to finally lead it to die. And that's ultimately where I think IPS technology will allow us to model disease, follow and, and start with the beginning where there was no disease and see what triggers, what were the original triggers that set up that neuron to fail later on in life. Hmm. That's really exciting, but it's also very complex and it's taken us a while to figure out. That's on the modeling side. I'll, I can talk more about the treatment side in a moment as well, but uh, that modeling is very exciting and it's led to something called Answer ALS, where we're making a thousand IPS lines uh, across the country now from patients with ALS and trying to understand are there changes in that process that I just mentioned that could figure out maybe there are many subtypes of ALS and not all accidents are caused by the same thing, right? It's often a different combination of things can cause something that looks the same. In another case, it was a cyclist who was at fault, not the truck driver. Still the same accident. <laughs> if, if you can understand that analogy, it really fits quite nicely, I think, with disease modeling and what we're trying to do. Learn And nice things, you can replay the disease over and over again and then look for mechanisms and then look for drugs that might have changed that whole thing, right? If you put a shun sunshade down, then the light wouldn't have got in his eyes and wouldn't have had the accident. If we could find the sunshade for ALS, I'd be a happy guy. Hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's definitely, a, it's a good analogy. And in a, in a way, it's a, it's a relevant one, at least when you're talking about the car accidents, right? Because, I mean, when it comes to stem cell therapies, you know, that there have been a lot, there's been a lot of work in that particular area, that exact area, you know, stem cell therapies being used for spinal cord repair in situations after car accidents, for example. I mean, it's been a holy grail of the stem cell field. And over the years, a bunch of different groups, as you're well aware of, have been interested in actually using pluripotent stem cells to repair the spinal cord after degenerative diseases such as ALF, but also after traumatic injury, traumatic injuries such as car accidents. And so, you know, we'll, we'll get to the the, GD, the GDNF story in a little bit, um, but could you actually first talk a little bit about the history of using stem cells therapies for those more acute traumatic spinal cord injuries? And in your view, what's like the, what's the most promising cell-based therapy approach for treating acute spinal cord injury? Oh, well, that's a large complex area. Uh, happy to very, <laughs> give a very brief overview because that could take, well take up an hour. Um, I think the first approach was actually not to put new neurons in, but to remyelinate. So I think the first idea, a company called Geron was formed, um, and a colleague of mine, Hans Kerstedt, uh, and others showed that if you put oligodendrocytes in to the spinal cord, you can remyelinate. So the damage in spinal cord injury sometimes is just you've got naked axons that can't transmit signals. So that's a much simpler lift than trying to reconnect, you know, the brain all the way down to the spinal cord. So the first attempts were remyelination. Um, to be honest, uh, they haven't gone a long way. I mean, there was some clinical trials from Geron, um, but they haven't really panned out in the way that they hoped, as far as I know. And there were still some companies in that space to remyelinate the axons to get function back in spinal cord patients. Uh, more recently, Marchaginsky and others have found that you can put neural progenitors into the spinal cord and they'll do a little relay. So here's the gap, there's a lesion in the spinal cord, you've had an injury, you can put a neural progenitor in that makes a new neuron, 
and that neuron then fills it, it projects down far enough to connect to the downstream signal that then allows you to have movement in your legs. That's very exciting. Mark Chichinsky again and others are pushing this now into clinical trials and uh, it's very hopeful. I mean, again, let's try and spinal cord injury is a tough one, uh, but it's one that is being actively worked on in those two areas, the ones that I know about. Yeah, I want to say that's a, that was another great big symbol. I remember that talk that Hans Kirstead would give with the animation of the mouse um, <laughs> that just would wow the crowd. And that was the era then, too, where we were so besotten. Right. And we were really I wouldn't say overhyping, but I don't know we that we realized how tough it was going to be, which is what makes it so gratifying. I think that we've had such success. Uh, again, again, I want to emphasize not me personally, um, but the field. Uh, but I want to circle back here to some of your own successes. Uh, you know, we've talked about it on the show, and it was a pretty big story. Um, we've been alluding to it, uh, your paper in Nature Medicine just recently, where you were transplanting uh, human, well, it was a phase one, two trial, uh, transplanting human neural progenitor cells, secreting GDNF, right? And that, that was, I think, what really stuck out to me. Um, and I... I very impressed with your body of research because I think you do have this more holistic approach that that it, it not just capitalizes on the cell regenerative potential here, but also the idea that you can engineer these cells. Um, in this case, uh, the cells were kind of that mechanism of their support, presumably, is is augmented by this engineering such that they express GDNF in, in proximity um, to the to the neurons, uh, motor neurons. And as I said, I love this approach because I think that not enough people are using this quote unquote souped up cells. You know, I think using cells as a cytokine delivery vector is an undervalued approach. Uh, but I do realize that some of the resistance to it, I can imagine that nature of a cell product here in, in these uh, delicate days at the interface of widespread application of stem cells, it's a, it's a delicate time. And I'm sure a, a engineered cell product raises more questions from the FDA. So I ask you, who's gone, someone who's gone through this process, what are the key things you need to demonstrate from a regulatory standpoint? And here is the key for me. You described the course of ALS, which is so vicious and so rapid. Does it make any difference that the population is afflicted with a condition that degenerates at such a rapid pace and has no effective treatment? Uh, are the regulatory hurdles a, a little bit lower so to speak in that patient class can you speak to those questions well yeah thanks for the intro into into what has been a, a 15 year to be honest with you uh, move really gdnf my interest started with parkinson's uh, it was used in clinical trials in parkinson's we had a, a another nature medicine paper early about 15 years 12 years ago now where we put gdnf into the striatum of patients with parkinson's disease as a protein to see if it could slow down parkinson's and that led to a whole series of other um, trials for Parkinson's, but of course, at the same time, ALS, uh, motor neurons are very responsive to GDNF. Chris Henderson showed many years ago that GDNF is a survival factor for motor neurons. So the idea is to try and get it to the motor neurons. Now, infusing into the spinal cord of protein is almost impossible. So that's where we came out with the idea of um, using a neural progenitor that makes an astrocyte as a way to get the, the uh, GDNF into the spinal cord. It's like a Trojan horse. You put the cells, the neural progenitors into the spinal cord. They make an astrocyte, which in itself is useful because astrocytes are known to be dysfunctional in ALS. So you get a fresh astrocyte and then it's releasing the GDNF 
inside the spinal cord. So that was the concept behind the use of GDNF. Um, getting from the bench you, to your question, getting from the research aspect of what I was doing to the to the bedside and the actual patient, it's this valley of death, right? That, you know, oh my God, I don't want to go there. Uh, luckily, we're in the state of California. The state of California has the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, CERM, initially three and a half billion. And now as of last year, they got another five and a half billion just for stem cell research and clinical trials, such as the one I was really wanting to do. So with CERM's help, I did manage to go to the FDA. Um, we filed an IND. It was four and a half thousand pages. I must say, I don't recommend this to everybody. Uh, normally companies do this. Um, but I had some superheroes here. Pablo Avalos, who worked, has worked for me for 10 years, is just a remarkable uh, guy who's really helped uh, pull off these, uh, these uh, INDs. And my wife, Shana Svensson, is an editor, and she's actually uh, worked in my lab for 15 years. And she wrote a good chunk of the IND as well and edited it. So if you have a good team, and we had some FDA consultants and a lot of funding concern. So we, yeah, we approached it and said, and going more to your question, ALS, why ALS? Well, yes, it makes a difference that this is a, a disease that kills you in three years. It makes a huge difference to the FDA. Because when you do a clinical trial, you have to do a risk benefit assessment. Now, if you wanted to do a stem cell transplant for migraine, and you said, I'm going to drill a hole in the patient's spine, and I'm going to inject the cells. Uh, you know, the FDA would turn and laugh, and they say, no way you're going to do that with a migraine patient, because they can take a pill that, you know, more or less fixes it. So, yes, it's enormously important. And the reason we, we did it is, you know, well, first I talked about already, we don't know what causes ALS. There's no mechanistic data yet on sporadic ALS, what causes it. And so I couldn't figure that out. So I figured, but we know GDNF protects motor neurons, and we know ALS astrocytes are sick. So we put that to, as a hypothesis to the FDA that secreting cells that make a new astrocyte that release GDNF would be a double blow and has a chance of doing something to protect the motor neuron and that these patients are going to die if we don't, if we don't do this. So that, that's the risk benefit. So the risk was maybe there'll be a tumor formation from the cells, maybe some damage from the uh, intrusiveness of putting the cells into the spinal cord. Those were all our risks. The benefit was maybe the cells were slow progression and that the FDA decided that risk benefit ratio was good. Uh, we provided a ton of data. We have animal models where we could protect the motor neurons using this technology. Uh, we went ahead with the trial with 18 patients. And uh, you know, the trial was successful in that it showed safety. We, we didn't design it to show efficacy. The protocol was show it's safe um, because this is, not, um, this is not a normal procedure for the neurosurgeons who were involved. Neurosurgeons don't normally take things out I don't put stuff in very often. So to, to actually inject cells into the intact cord was, was quite an achievement. Uh, and again, hats off to Pat Johnson, the neurosurgeon who did this. Uh, I'm just kind of the conductor for, for what I feel has been an amazing orchestra to allow this to happen. Um, and we showed safety. And what's more is if you look at the data carefully in that paper, I, I, I actually went to Nature Medicine because they agreed to publish the whole story, not just the trial, with the whole story. And if you look at the paper, we did a whole ton of preclinical studies in rats, uh, rodents, and, and pigs, and that led to the trial. And then we showed all the data from the trial. It was, it was really a transparent vision into how you do this. And so if people want to look at what it takes, it, it kind of is all in the paper. I just spilled it all out. <laughs> um, we got safety, and we also showed, if you look at the data, that the high-dose group patients did a little better. Now, 
Finally, a very inter interesting aspect of this trial was it was a unilateral transplant. This is very rarely done in, in trials. We only put the cells on one side of the spinal cord to treat one leg, not the other leg. And that was important because in ALS, it's very variable. I mean, I say average is three years, but some patients it's one year and others it's seven years. So how do you know how slowly it's gonna progress? But we showed in another paper that in ALS, if uh, one leg goes rapidly and, do, and, and gets weak very fast, guess what? The other leg follows suit. Mm. And if one leg goes slowly, the other leg goes slowly. Well, duh, that's, that's like enormous benefit for statistics because now you can use the other leg as a control. And the FDA agreed we could do that. We actually blinded it so the patient didn't know which leg had been treated, which was an interesting part of the trial. And then we followed both legs over time and asked, is the treated leg doing better than the non-treated leg? And the honest truth is in the low-dose group, it was pretty level, although it, it almost reached significance at the 12-month point. It's a 12-month trial. But for the high dose, in every case, the leg we treated did slightly better than the leg we didn't treat. So we hadn't done any harm to those patients. In fact, if anything, it was a little better, just didn't make significance. So now we're doing more patients. We also learned that the graphs were a little too high. We were nervous to go too deep because we didn't want to hit the, the pool of motor neurons. So we went a little higher, hoping the cells would migrate down. They didn't. Most times they either refluxed a little bit back up or held in the, in the dorsal part of the spinal cord. And so we were disappointed that we didn't get low enough, but we've learned now. I will make, make a, another point, the post-mortem data, that the patients all donated their spinal cords after death. And that, this was a remarkable part of the trial that we could actually see in 12 patients where we put the cells post-mortem. You couldn't do that with migraine. Um, and, and I think the patients were really the heroes in this trial in that they participated. We clearly told them, this is not a, a miracle therapy. If anything, we might help one leg. And they, they went into the trial with that consented knowledge that this was an experiment. But if we could understand if the cell survived and released GDNF, which are, they did, every transplant we saw, the cells made it, they turned into astrocytes and they released GDNF. It's just they were in the wrong place some of the time. And now we're doing more patients this year we plan to do more patients where we're going a little deeper and we're going a little earlier in the disease, right? Because we went quite late. So this is a protective strategy. So those two things are happening. So it took a while to explain, but that's kind of a summary of the paper. And uh, it led us to the next trial, which I can talk briefly about at this time. Yeah, it's been really cool just kind of being a fly in the wall and observing the progress of this trial, you know, just me being right next door. But I, I think the other part of this is that you and I both are at a place in Cedar sinai which is, I think, perfectly positioned to do this kind of work. I mean, you moved from Wisconsin to Cedars in sunny Los Angeles a little bit more than a decade ago, right, which is where you were actually recruited to be the founding director of the, the Board of Governors Regenerative Medicine Institute, which is where we both are. And I'm biased as a junior faculty member at the RMI and at Cedars, but I'd like to think kind of in that time, Cedars has become really a powerhouse for translational stem cell research in large part, thanks to your leadership. And part of it is it's, it's so closely tied to Cedars overall strength as one of the best clinical hospitals in the world. And I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit of self-promotion here. We're actually recently ranked number two in the country and number one in California in this year's, you know, US News hospital rankings. And some of our departments, as you're well aware of, like the Smith Heart Institute, have had such a meteoric rise to prominence in the last 15 years, in part thanks to the leadership of Dr. Marban, Eduardo Marban, for example. 
And with all that being said about the amazing clinical expertise in Cedars, what, in your view, what is it that makes Cedars such a, a perfect place for the trials that you're conducting and also for stem cell research in general? And kind of what, what do you want to do next at Cedars? Yeah, <clears throat> Cedars is kind of my company, right? I never formed a company. Uh, many of my colleagues have because they had to. They don't have this infrastructure. I've got, when I, when I started the trial here, CERN paid the funding for the trial, but I had pharmacy to deliver the cells to. The pharmacy got the cells and then delivered it to the OR. I had the OR team. Uh, we had the neurosurgeons, neurologists, the pharmacists. We had to immunosuppress the patients. So we needed a whole immunosuppression regime. We brought the transplant team in. All of that is here at Cedars-Sinai. Um, and they were very open to working with me. Uh, I'm a PhD, not an MD, but I'm the sponsor. So the clinical PI on the trial was actually Bob Baylor originally, and now it's Rich Lewis fantastic clinicians, neurologists, but I coordinated it. It's been fantastic, but I needed Cedars to, to be really partnering with me in making this happen. And, and we, we don't want to do it just for ALS. We're, we're doing this across different diseases. So medical centers can be fantastic incubators for this kind of cutting edge, new kind of trials. And I'm going to get to my last question, which is about my biggest thing about science. We're asking questions, guys. We're not, we're not saying I'm going out I have to cure ALS with this technology. We're, we're scientists, in a sense, we're doing scientific trials. We're asking, does GDNF have an effect? And I want to know the answer. If it's no, I'll move on. If it's yes, wow, you know, I'll license the technology and we'll start a company. <laughs> You've got to ask questions. Companies cannot go into, into trials saying, I've got to cure this disease, and that's going to be my only press release. It's going to be, I've, I've, I've solved the problem. You've got to go into it with a question that, because you don't know the answer yet, and you've got to be unbiased on the answer, like every good scientist. You, you've got, you can't be wedded to your hypothesis. You've got to accept either outcome. <laughs> and as a company, it's tough because you've invested patents for years and money and everything. So if the outcome is I've cured ALS, uh, if the outcome, you're happy. But if the outcome is I didn't cure ALS, it's disaster and all your investors leave. So I think we should be doing this in a non-biased way. And I think CERN funding uh, is good because I can answer the question and move on to my next grant. And maybe it's a different way that we can solve this problem. These are all issues and problems in, in, for research. Last thing is on the disease modeling front, I, I just got to make this point because I get a lot of criticisms about, um, I know we did, we developed a blood brain barrier model, Arun, as you, you probably know with gabapentin and others on a microfluidic chip device. And I've had some pushback from that model because a few people wrote to me and said, well, it's applied, it's blood brain barrier model. And it's not really the blood brain barrier. You know, your cells aren't identical to the human blood brain barrier, blah, blah, blah. Look, that's why we use the word model, right? Anything in vitro is not the real thing. I mean, if you think it is, then you're completely in the wrong zone. And I, the best analogy for that, sorry, I'm using analogies today. I've had a lot of caffeine, but <laughs> if you, and when I was a boy, I used to build these uh, plastic models of planes. You get the kit and, and the smell of glue. I still remember it growing up. Like you get this kit and you go to the shop and you'd be so excited. You get home and you build this fantastic bomber jet, you know? and you stick it on your stand and you put it by your bed at night, right? Now, that's a model. That's what I call a model. It's a fighter jet model. Would I fly to it, to, to America? Of course not. When I did my BBB model and published it in Cell Stem Cell, it's a model, guys. It's not the real blood-brain barrier. I'm not going to fly to America in it. It's a model. And we all do models. In vitro, everything is a model. It's all artificial. And at Cedars-Sinai, what, what I really want to do is validate some of these models. It only becomes interesting to me when you validate it in a human disease. 
going back to ALS, if we, if we develop a model that predicts a gene is different or a protein, and we get the drug and it fixes it, I want to see that you add that drug to a patient, it fixes a patient. And ALS is so rapid, if the drug worked, you would know within six months <laughs> if your model was accurate. And if it's not accurate, your model is rubbish, and it's fine. We, we're all trying to blindly make things in vitro that aren't in vivo. There's no immune system in most of our models. It's, it's, I could list 100 things that make them a terrible model. But if they, had, if they validate in a clinical trial, you've got me. Hmm. But nobody's doing enough validation. Uh, medical centers like ours can actually validate for people. And we've got to be a little aggressive and try and move the models into the clinic faster and i'd like to bypass companies if possible for the reasons i outlined earlier you've got to do this academically and then when you get a hit companies can get involved license the technology and run off and make billions of dollars and, and cure lots of patients we, you've got to scale it you need companies i like what you said there and i like that just to oversimplify your idea there it's like just making tools to ask questions and got to be open to the yes or the no or the true or the false just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it's true so yeah i mean that's the, the the pith of it in science and i agree with you people are so invested in their own outcome that they really can't be unbiased and that's understandable but in order to do it right i think we gotta we gotta take some measures of control against that you also though um mentioned serum there i mean your your institute has been a, a major vehicle of progress for serum you were generously funded um just re-upped that funding uh a little while back um what what are some of the well i mean don't even go the notable achievements from that i think you've addressed all this stuff that you've talked about and as you've ex explicitly mentioned has been facilitated um by serum but there's another element that i wanted to zero in on from this new chunk of funding uh, for CEDARS to establish the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic. Can you tell us about that? So the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic concept is, you know, we do a lot of clinical trials in stem cells here, and <clears throat> we have some hypertension trials going on. We have some, uh, as Arun knows, in the heart, um, some exosome trials or stem cell trials for the heart. What the CERM Alpha Stem Cell Clinic gives is some infrastructure support. So it gives some support for CRCs, you know, people who actually do the clinical trial, the, the clinic, clinical helpers, if you like. Um, it gives support for basic resources that we need to support the trials, IRB support, um, other aspects like biomarkers and patient outcomes. We, we have a proteomics group here with Jenny Van Eyck. We're going to be uh, using those biomarkers to follow patients' outcomes. So things like that. And the nice thing, the network is called the Alpha Stem Cell Network is we're gonna be with working with all the other alpha stem cell clinics across California. So just about every major institution has one from San Diego all the way up to Stanford. And we all get together, You know, I think it's gonna be three or four times a year and discuss how can we collaborate? Can we share patients? Uh, patient recruitment is often an issue, especially with ALS is quite a rare disease relatively. And so could we share like four sites? Could you do the same protocol across uh, 20 different patients who live locally it makes it a lot easier you don't have to go travel you know 300 miles to go for your clinical appointment things like that so it's a fascinating uh, uh thing and we're very happy that CERM has uh, supported these alpha stem cell clinics uh, that's a very high level summary yeah i mean we've talked a lot about the the translational focus at cedars and I actually wanted to mention a a conference that's actually happening at 
Cedars this very week. It's, uh, I think, a fantastic and very relevant to what we're talking about. This is a cell symposium on advances and therapeutic applications of stem cells in collaboration with CIRM and, and Cedars. And I've been looking forward to this conference for more than a year now. And the speaker list is just crazy. It's incredible. So many leaders in the translational stem cell field. And, and actually, we've had a lot of these speakers on our on our show recently, you know, including Stu Orkin, Ludovic Vallier, Joe Wu, um, Shubing Chen, Maria Milan, Sheila Chari, and you, of course. Um, so can you give us a, like a brief overview of the symposium and what you're most looking forward to for, for this week? Well, thanks, Arun. And uh, yeah, all those people, uh, including Doug Melton, uh, Hans Kuyper, Hans Klebers, who both of by the way, have just moved to industry, um, and uh, many other speakers. And I think you know, going back to, okay, I was a little hard on industry before. I mean, obviously, <laughs> industry um, and, and companies are driving a lot of the research, obviously, in technology that's going on. So we, we try to make it across industry, academia, and uh, clinical science. And just looking at the new stem cell area and how, it, how therapeutics are growing. Um, and it really covers, I think, the whole spectrum from, from modeling to therapy. We also have a very interesting session on ethics, bioethics, because that's coming back into play again a little bit. I mean, we thought we were over it with iPS cells. Now they start making synthetic embryos. Um, uh, so, so we're now into the sort of an interesting area. We're also into the CRISPR era. And regenerative medicine just covers more than just stem cells. You know, we're regenerating tissues and uh, we're getting back into thinking about CRISPR editing for, you know, curing childhood diseases, et cetera. So there's a, a nice ethics session as well. that would be fun at the meeting. And so we hope just to get, the other thing is it's in person, which, uh, you know, we're back now. And I think we're just enjoying having a meeting here. It's the third one we've done with Sal at Cedar sinai So we're very looking, I'm just looking forward to, to meeting everybody and having a, a coffee and getting out of this damn Zoom box and back into the real world. <laughs> yeah, I, for one, as uh, the winter weather approaches, I'm, I'm eyeing that sunny California climb myself personally, but... Uh... <laughs> You might find me there. Uh, I want to segue to the to the kind of final chapter of the show, a little bit of science peripheral, but this is still in, I think, in the science vein. Um, so I'm going with it. I mean, you've been you've been around the block, uh, building your career, many of the foundational stem cell locales, you know, ground zeros, grounds zero, I guess you would say. In the history of stem cell research, Cambridge briefly, but really Wisconsin, where you started your career and really made a huge impact. Cedars, of course, we've talked about. And in my opinion, you're a, a great model for an early career scientist to follow. I mean, you built these large and diverse working groups wherever you've gone. You fostered both this basic and clinical translational research in your own, as well as collaborating labs. And also, you've been a really highly visible and fluent communicator to the press and the public. I mean, all those analogies that you're kicking off here, clearly those those don't come out of nowhere. You know how to speak to the people to make them understand. Um, and for us, you know, Arun and I as science communicators, that, that's tremendously valuable in our opinion. Um, but what I'm going to ask here is about your advice, the young trainees, uh, something we like to ask at the end of the show of some investigators. But in your case, I think it's particularly apt because there's a real diversity of opportunity and scope of work in the field so much greater than, than there was when when you were coming up, even you know when Arun was coming up like five years ago. Um, so the question is, what do you think it takes nowadays to chart a successful path in stem cell science for a, a younger trainee? What's the what's the path 
that is likely to result in success in your view? What does it integrate? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, <clears throat> it's a very complex question, obviously. I just I just tell you how I got into science very briefly. I don't I know we're at the end of the show, but I, I literally was 18 and I went to this place called Harvard, which this is 40 years ago. I didn't even know it was that big a deal. Um, I just looked on a map, thought, oh, this is a Boston fun to, to wash dishes in a lab, basically, as a tech. Harvard didn't pay me for six months because they messed my visa up. And my boss, Ted Bird, was actually the discoverer of the uh, striatal differences in Huntington's disease, a fantastic MD, let me run his lab. And so the long story short is I took over his lab with no PhD. And so I did seven years there and I met lovely people like Dennis Selko, who, who now is super famous for Alzheimer's, and worked with them. And um, I didn't need a PhD because I was so curious. And I think the successful scientists, and I've trained a lot of kids coming through, young, young great people, and what I look for and what I think is, is critical is that you're curious. And I can't emphasize that enough. You want to ask questions. And if you're curious and you have, you know, you, I honestly, I flunked that. I wasn't good at high school. I never, I was terrible at exams because I'd always get to, there were three questions. Question one, you know, and I thought I knew the answer. So, so I go on for hours on question one thinking I'll, I'll solve this. And, uh, and of course, I missed question two and three. So I've always got bad grades, pretty much. Um, I got enough to get into college, obviously, and, and do a great. I, I've done well, essentially, after that. So my my feeling is for the young scientists is be inquisitive, be curious, and work hard. I mean, I have to say that I, I didn't, I don't think I ever wanted to work hard. I just loved it so much. I couldn't get out of the lab. Arun, you like this. I've seen you in the lab. I didn't want to leave because I'm like, why are you throwing me out? Ted Bird threw me out when it's midnight. He said, Clive, you've really got to go. I said, why? I've got two more sections to stain and they're almost done. I just want to see what the result is. <laughs> and it's that that's kept me going. And I've never worked, honestly, guys, I've never worked a day in my life because I'd be sitting here doing this if, you know, if I wasn't paid a penny. Luckily, they pay me pretty well here, which is like for me, it's a bonus. I'm doing what I love doing. If you're not passionate, if you can be lucky enough in life, uh, to find a career that you are so passionate about every day when you wake up in the morning you're like i can't wait to get to work if you call it that you've succeeded and then then the rest follows quite naturally if you come into work and go oh my god i gotta do another gel will the clock ever get to the end so i can get out of here um and you're going into a research career i'm sorry it's gonna be tough I and mean, you can be a technician which is fine and you just do a nine to five i, I respect that but if you want to be a faculty member and go all that route, it's really hard unless you have that kind of inbuilt passion and, and want to ask questions. And finally, don't be, I've always got this, I don't know who told me this very end of my career though, is ask a question and, and think about the answer and don't be upset if it's yes or no. You've got to love the answer, whichever way it is. Be a physicist. You know, physicists love to slaughter their hypothesis. I love slaughtering hypothesis. Once you get the answers, move on. And then think about steps ahead. If you can do that, you'll be a successful young scientist. And don't be scared to ask those questions and answer them and then and then put them behind you and move on because that's what science is about. Sorry, that was a long answer. But... 
No, I think it's a good one. Curiosity and fearlessness. That's kind of the, the foundation for what we should do. And I just want to say, you know, thank you for for joining us here, Clive. You know, you're a, a role model to not just to me, but a, a lot of us in the field, in the stem cell field, and definitely at Cedars with all the the trainees that you've, you know, put out from your lab. It's it's incredible to to see your leadership and just the way you've made Cedars grow and our department grow over the years. And it's it's gonna be cool to see what you do next with the trial and so many other things that you're excited about. We didn't even talk about the space stuff. So we'll have to, you have to come back on the show to talk a little bit about that. But before we uh, let you go, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is um, what do you think is the the biggest misconception about science and, and what how can we solve this misconception? Well, I think I've touched on it all the way through. I think the biggest misconception is for, uh, that you have to prove your hypothesis is right. People have this feeling that you've set up a hypothesis to prove it's right, and that's that's the biggest misconception. You set up a hypothesis to prove it's wrong, <laughs> uh, and I think I'd like to leave people with that: is please, please, if you're in science, you know, have a hypothesis, but you've got to make sure that whatever way that it's usually a question, yes, no, you're happy with either one, and that's what science is. It's actually not showing your hypothesis is right; uh, it's it's actually answering the question. It's it's asking a good question and getting the answer. That's science. So don't go don't go trying to prove your hypothesis is right. <laughs> My hypothesis could be right or wrong. I don't know if that that to me is the most frustrating thing I meet all the time. And uh, people have to be scientists need to be very sure. And that means that leads into like blinding your data, so not being scared to completely blind everything, and then the result will come to you after you've unblinded. And a lot of people don't blind enough in science. I don't think they. They know what they want to see and they say, oh, I'm not going to be biased. Uh, anyway. Yeah, you got to ask the question and get out of the way. That's my takeaway here. And I believe it. And I, you know, I'm with you. I, I need to, I need to improve myself in that too, because the self-blinding, you can't really be blind to your, I mean, you are blind to your own intrinsic bias, most of all. So um, that's really a, a great point to take away from that for for not just the trainees but all the scientists listening to the show. Clive, yeah, again, echoing Arun's sentiments there. You're an icon, and we really appreciate you coming on the show and really simplifying science. I have a, a fresh view, um, you know, notwithstanding all the tremendous complexity of your work. I think I got a fresh view and, and a, a simpler view of uh, my approach for science, and that's thanks to you. So. Um, appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it as well. It's a great show. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Once again, thanks to Dr. Svensson for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk to his newly independent former mentee and myself. Thanks also to you guys for listening. Until the next time, enjoy your stem cells. Mm-hmm.